0: To the silver screen. Welcome back, listeners, to the sixth installment in our Christopher Nolan movie review series. Today, we are reviewing The Dark Knight. This is your co-host, Corbin. I'm Alan. And as we said in last week's episode, which was not Batman Begins, Christopher Nolan took a little bit of a break in between sequels to direct The Prestige, which still sees Christian Bale and Michael Caine appearing in those films. So audiences had to wait 37 months for the sequel to come out which is a long time
1: yep. to wait yep just so, um, just about uh well that'd be four years because it's two years to prestige and then roughly two years to the dark knight so
0: so it's a it's a bit to wait which would be hard. Oh, yeah. Um, I remember seeing Batman Begins very excited. And of course, when you're younger, it feels like a long time. Oh, but yeah. if you haven't heard our review on The Prestige or our other Christopher Nolan movies, especially Batman Begins, definitely go ahead. That link is in the description below. Go ahead and click on that and check um, all of those things out. Now, as I said, The Dark Knight was released Wednesday, July 16th. 2008, right there in the sweet spot of the summer months, a perfect time for this film.
1: Oh yeah, that this is a movie that is perfect for the uh, summer season because we noted that Batman Begins did very well in the box office when it was released, so it would make a lot of sense that The Dark Knight would do just as good, if not better. Uh, because of the success of Batman Begins, and at this point, because of the of the success of Christopher Nolan's name on these pictures,
0: the other thing I will say is I'm glad they took their time to make this movie, mm-hmm. and they didn't they didn't necessarily strike while the iron was hot and just turn around and go into production for the sequel because I think they really needed some breathing room to develop a solid follow up to Batman Begins because sometimes. Sequels that are done too close to each other end up being poor for a myriad of reasons. And also, if you wait too long, you run the risk of losing audience interest. Right. And thankfully, that wasn't the case. They did not lose audience interest with this as well. I will say 2008 for popular movies wasn't great. Yeah. I wrote down a list just to kind of help take you back to 2008. What was playing in theaters at the time? This was actually also the birth of what we now know as the Marvel Cinematic Universe.
1: That's right. Iron Man released this year.
0: Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk, which Ooh, yeah, right. is kind of the black sheep. We kind of don't talk about that one yeah. anymore. Um Wally was released. Uh, Twilight ah, came out. Ah,
1: yeah. Haven't seen any of them yet.
0: This was like also kind of the birth of some... Some franchises and some franchises that failed as well. Uh Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull.
1: Mm, yes, we reviewed we have reviewed that one.
0: Yeah. You can listen to all of our Indiana Jones reviews. <laughs> oh dear. Especially for that one. Okay. Taken also came out. So Liam okay. Neeson moved on from Batman into Taken. So this would that will
1: launch his like action movie career for about uh ever. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> uh Step Brothers also came out it's kind of funny because when batman begins came out Qua- uh, casino royale came out and the same year the dark knight comes out quantum of solace comes out ah yes rambo came out which we've also reviewed that's right yeah
1: yeah in 2008 i know you mentioned this a second ago but i was definitely in the theater for prince caspian i convinced my mom to take my brother and i to go and watch
0: it mm. Yeah, that's a, I, I think it's a good one.
1: Yeah, I think that has been the only time I've seen it. I haven't re- been able to return to it quite yet. I want to, but I oh. haven't done it yet.
0: Now, this film is written by Christopher and Jonathan Nolan. His brother is writing with him. You'll notice that David S. Goyer is not writing. He does get story credits, though. Okay. And Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard are back to score the film.
1: Oh, it should be noted too. I, since we're just briefly on the topic of score, I do have the vinyl of this composition. Oh, My cousin wow. gave it to me for my birthday a few years ago.
0: That is super nice. That would be amazing to listen to. Yeah,
1: it's pretty nice. Oh. Uh,
0: yeah, we'll talk about the score later, but they they really did an incredible job on the score. So interestingly enough, I was combing through some of the special features on the Dark Knight two-disc set. And a lot of these features were mostly dealing with Batman Begins. So it's kind of like they created them after the fact. And it really did come across like Batman Begins was, in a way, a gamble. Because they weren't sure how audiences were going to take to it. Mm -hmm. And if it would be good, if it would produce a sequel or more than that. Um, But one of the things I did find fascinating was Christopher Nolan based his Bruce Wayne on our former president, Theodore Roosevelt. Really? Yes. So Roosevelt's father was mayor of New York City, and he was a philanthropist like Thomas Wayne. Mm -hmm. And uh, Teddy underwent tragedy by losing his mother and his wife on the same day. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so then he went to the Badlands to die, essentially, but he regained his purpose and he returned to New York to become the police commissioner and he would go out at night, literally fighting crime.
1: That's interesting. I didn't even know that that was a thing.
0: I didn't know that was a thing at all, but I know when Christopher Nolan came to the producers, he said, Teddy Roosevelt is the key to understanding this character. He's our model. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. And it is surprising when the title for this movie came out because they didn't call it Batman 2, Batman Begins 2, Batman The Dark Knight. It's just simply called The Dark Knight, which if you have a passing familiarity with the character, you know that is something else he's called.
1: Right. Yeah. And I know that this would be, uh, of course, the name is very iconic because... This is considered now, I guess you could say, one of the greatest movies of all time, as well as maybe we consider it the greatest superhero movie of all time as well.
0: Oh, absolutely. Yes. And that is definitely reflected in how it was reacted by critics and audiences. Because at the time, critics gave this film an overwhelming 94% Oof. approval rating. Certified fresh, and that is the highest uh, critic rating on Rotten Tomatoes no one has received. Wow. And also, the audience score is 94% as well, which um, I should note that is actually tied with Memento and Batman Begins. Gotcha, okay. Now, critically on Metascore, it has an 84
1: Which is a little bit lower, I guess, than I was expecting. But, I mean, it's still Mm. very good.
0: It's a jump from the prestigious 66.
1: Yeah, that's true. That's true.
0: And, yes, um, it's an 84. I believe Batman Begins was, like, 70.
1: I think you're right. Yeah.
0: So, it's a leap from Batman Begins. And I think that's kind of the story here, is that this is critically heads and tails above Batman Begins. Right. Oh, yeah. Surprisingly enough, audiences on CinemaScore did not give this film an A+.
1: Really? Was it an A?
0: They, they gave it an A, but no A+. And I should note that that's the same exact score audiences gave Batman Begins.
1: That's interesting.
0: Huh. And so at the time when this movie was released, audiences initially saw this film is equally just as good yeah, as I, Batman Begins.
1: I, yeah, according to those who t- did the CinemaScore survey...
0: And it's still held the same, uh, audience score on Rotten Tomatoes as Batman Begins. Mm-hmm. But this film has gained prestige a lot over time. Uh, it currently holds a straight nine Which on IMDb. Which
1: is absolutely insane. Yes, because, that is
0: super rare.
1: Oh yeah, I think this is, it's like what, number four on the top 250, right?
0: Mm-hmm, number four.
1: Yeah, because it's, it's like, uh... Shank Redemption, and then the two Godfather sequels, and then this. So that's insane. A, we, this is the highest rated movie we've reviewed so far on this podcast, That at least IMDb wise. A straight 9.0 is extremely rare. Um, and as we've noted, the movies that are un, in these top spots are ones that have been there since almost the beginning of time and probably will never move from their spot that high in the list.
0: Oh, yeah. And this is clearly Nolan's highest IMDb rated film. And it also has the highest uh, spot on the IMDb top 250 for Christopher Nolan's films.
1: Oh, yeah. And I know that when this movie first came out, it was actually number one uh, on the top 250 for a while. Mm. And it Mm -hmm. screwed everything up for the top (laughs) 10, 15 spots, because originally it was The Godfather and The Godfather Part 2 were the top. And I think Shawshank Redemption wasn't too far behind. It might be number three. And then Dark Knight came out and screwed all that up. So next thing you know, Shawshank Redemption is number one. Then the two Godfather movies and then the Dark Knight. So at a time, Shawshank Redemption was not number one.
0: And it also should be no surprise that this film definitely had a strong presence at the Academy Awards. Oh,
1: yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: So it was nominated for eight Oscars. Which, whew.
1: That's a lot of Oscars, especially for a guy who's kind of continuously been at the Oscars the last few years.
0: Yeah, he was just at the Oscars for his previous film with uh, Prestige, and also um, he was there a couple years prior with Memento. Yep. So this is Christopher Nolan's sixth film, and across six films, his six movies have garnered 13 Oscar nominations.
1: Which is, yeah, that's pretty insane. And most of them are from The Dark Knight.
0: And this is the first time um, one of his films has won an Oscar.
1: Which one did it win? I forget.
0: So Heath Ledger won posthumously after his tragic death. That's right. He did win for Best Supporting Actor. And then also it won for Best Sound Editing. Okay. And I mean, this this is actually a really big milestone in Academy Award history and cinema history because this is a genre film. And even more than that, it's a superhero film. Yeah. And that um, that really doesn't happen, a superhero movie going to the Oscars. Yeah,
1: it never has and very likely might not in the future because superhero movies are very much made for the audience, not necessarily for the yeah. Academy. You'll get nominations here and there. I think Avengers, is uh, at least in the last couple of movies, have gotten at least a nomination for, for visual effects. But I don't think it's ever won anything. That's about as far as I go. Visual effects... Is about as far as those big Hollywood pictures go with the Oscars, if they win it at all.
0: Exactly. And it took a lot of people by surprise when Logan, the X-Men film, that got best adapted screenplay. But that is a movie, some would say, is akin to The Dark Knight, where it's not trying to be this comic book movie. Mm -hmm. It's really trying to tell a very emotional tale. Right. It was also nominated for cinematography, film editing, art direction, makeups and makeup, sound mixing, and visual effects. Okay, I gotta say, I'm surprised this movie didn't get nominated for best picture, best director, or best uh, adapted screenplay.
1: Yeah, I'm a little bit surprised that it didn't get the best, at least the best picture nomination for 2000. Though I guess in this case it would be the Oscars in 2009. But yeah.
0: Especially considering Black Panther got the nominee yeah, for best picture, <laughs> but
1: you know we don't really talk about that. <laughs> yeah, this would have been the year that Slumdog Millionaire won best picture.
0: So this movie did very bad at the box oh, office. I believe it.
1: I'm sure it just did horrible.
0: I'm completely kidding. Of course, this movie did jaw droppingly well. I don't think anybody could have predicted how well this movie did oh, financially. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it, I, remember the num- I remember hearing the numbers at the time, if I'm not mistaken, it was the highest grossing superhero movie ever, which is oh, no yeah. surprise, technically, I guess.
0: No, this was the highest grossing superhero movie ever. It was also at the time the highest uh, domestic grossing movie ever. Uh, it really w- uh, broke a lot of records. And so Nolan has his biggest budget he's ever gotten with one hundred and eighty five million dollars. And he turns that into a, uh, this is his highest domestic gross for any of his movies, uh, which is $533.3 million, a half of a billion dollars just domestically.
1: Whoa, that's a lot of money.
0: And so for the foreign markets, he gets $469.7 million for a worldwide total of over $1 billion.
1: That is ridiculous. Oh,
0: it's completely ridiculous. It made like, 10 times back its
1: budget. That is ridiculous.
0: (laughs) So it should be no shock opening weekend. It was number one with a whopping $158.4 million opening weekend.
1: (laughs) So it made back almost its budget opening weekend.
0: Oh yeah. It grossed more opening weekend than the budget of Batman Begins. Wow. Yikes. And this also should come at no surprise. It was number one at the box office four weeks in a row for a solid month it uh, controlled the box office
1: i believe it. it that's no surprise
0: and then in week five it did drop to number two it was dethroned by you'll probably never believe it but it was dethroned by tropic thunder really yes
1: that's interesting
0: <laughs> it's surprising to say the least but for opening weekend of course this was number one Number two was Mama Mia, which was also opening that weekend. Uh, okay, a very different film.
1: Yes, a very different film. That's a musical. I think I've seen pieces of it, but yes, very different genres. Actually, yeah. I think they're the same rating, if I'm not mistaken. PG-13. I did.
0: S- I did see uh, Mama Mia in a live performance. It was incredible. Oh, that's the movie cool. uh, I struggled to stick with it. I we shut it off. Me and my fiance. Oh, oh. Um, Also, number three was Hancock with Will Smith. I never saw it.
1: I have heard about it. I haven't seen it either.
0: Number four was Journey to the Center of the Earth with Uh, The Rock. I have seen that one. Ah, okay. And then Guillermo del Toro's Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, which is technically a comic book film as well, a graphic novel film. That came in at number five. So, Alan, when did you say was the first time you saw this movie? (sighs)
1: Well, it would have been around the time I saw Prestige. I'm pretty sure I watched these Batman movies in order. I think oh. it was before, yeah, it was before Batman Dark Knight Rises, the sequel to this came out. I know that for a fact because you, me, and another one of our friends went and saw that at the drive-in. I remember that. Oh, yeah. I think it was Dark Knight Rises. Um, yeah, it, so- was.
0: it was because I remember you bane's line i'm necessary evil you're like oh that's good i'm tweeting yes
1: that's right (laughs) that's right so it would have it wouldn't have been too far before uh dark knight rises released. so i would say probably 2011 or so i'd always heard about this movie ever it came out but i when i finally got to watch it, it was probably like 2011 2010 or so i believe
0: i saw this movie When it opened, I want to say it was probably it had been out for a week or something. and It was like killing me. Everyone was seeing it. And I wasn't getting to because me and my family had just gone on vacation. Yep. And we were up in a little mountain town called Breckenridge in Colorado. Ah. Yeah. And they did have a movie theater. It was in the basement of their little college. It was actually pretty cool. So that's when I saw The Dark Knight for the first time. And I remember really liking it. And everyone was telling me, oh, it, of course, it's better than the first one. But I yeah. didn't believe him. And I said, I like the first one better than this one. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. That was my initial reaction.
1: Yeah. I think, let me think here. I know for a fact that The Joker was, a, of course, a big influence on how much I ended up liking this movie when I first watched it. I think I've probably seen this into the thirties. I think I've seen it honestly that many times because for a a good chunk amount of of amount of time, this was my number one movie. Like I loved this movie to death. And I could Mm. I was able to quote the first like (laughs) 30 minutes or so almost to a T. That's how much I had seen this movie back a few years ago.
0: And so I haven't seen this movie as much. I've I mean I saw it in the theater, and then I did actually get to see it when it was re-released into IMAX oh, theaters. Uh, me and uh, one of our mutual friends, I went and saw it with him. I don't know where you were. I'm sorry you didn't get to come with us.
1: Yeah, I I never did get to see this in the theater, and I kind of really want to.
0: Uh, yeah, maybe it'll come back eventually. But And I saw that it had been out for a number of years when they were like, well, there's nothing playing and it going to be playing an IMAX right now. So mm-hmm. they, we got it back in theaters then. Uh, that was really incredible. Yep. And I guess the last time I watched this movie was August 14th, 2016. Oh wow. So it wasn't as long ago as I told you when we were talking about it at the end of the prestige podcast. So it was about three and a half years ago. I don't remember watching it then at all.
1: Yeah. I know the last time I watched it was, I think I said three years ago, and last podcast, I think it's still pretty accurate. I want to say it's around three years since I've seen this movie.
0: Now, of course, one of the big aspects of this film is the inclusion of the villain, the Joker.
1: Oh, yeah. This is the thing I think that makes The Dark Knight uh, as popular as it is, is because mm-hmm. uh, at the time, Heath Ledger's uh, Joker performance, that was the talk of the town back in 2008.
0: Oh, it was. And... A lot of people were saying he was better than Jack Nicholson, who had just, who was the last on-screen portrayal of the Joker in Tim Burton's 89 Batman. Yep. People were just in awe of his performance. And uh, I know the actor, Aaron Eckhart, who plays Harvey Dent, he said Christopher Nolham told him on set that, uh, quote, Heath is doing something special. Mm-hmm. Like, this was something really uh, above and beyond, and I think really what they were expecting from him.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, this was a performance that when he was cast, I remember there being people who were like, what? Why would they cast Heath Ledger? Because he had been in things like A Knight's Tale. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one, I think. Brokeback um, Mountain. Brokeback Mountain, yeah, is one of them. Brothers Grimm, I believe, is another one. Right. Um, and so he was more of a comedic actor. And, and in a lot of ways, and so when they cast him, I remember people saying like, "What? That's a weird choice." Of course, now they're eating their words because you <laughs> up being amazing.
0: <laughs> yeah, and that's interesting because that's just that seems to be the cast like the history of casting of Batman in general. Mm-hmm. Because Michael Keaton was also a comedian, and they're like, "Michael Keaton as Batman, okay." That's right. Same yep. Jack. Jack Nicholson seemed to be a strange choice um ben affleck was a very strange choice at the time and joaquin phoenix was a strange choice and of course joaquin just won he just also won the academy award for his portrayal of joker yep which applauds to him because he was able to make it its own thing which was very difficult to do coming off of ledger's performance which seemed to top all joker performances The only one that people hated was, uh, Jared Leto's performance. That's right. Yeah.
1: From suicide squad. Yeah. Uh, We don't talk about that movie.
0: In, in 2008, I would have been 13, the the perfect age to watch a PG 13 movie.
1: Yeah. Especially one like this, which is, I would say pushing that PG 13, especially with the climax that we have.
0: It does push it. And, uh, I took. The Joker origin from Batman, the animated series, and from Tim Burton's Batman as the definitive Joker persona. And so when I didn't see Heath Ledger getting burned in a vat of acid and I realized he was just wearing paint on his face, Mm -hmm. I was really confused. And at the time, I was disappointed. Really? Really? I was totally disappointed because I thought, no, we got to see Joker fall in the acid. And yep. that's that's how he becomes the Joker. And we didn't get it. <laughs> in hindsight, I'm glad that's not the case for this movie. Yeah. yeah. And of course, as I mentioned earlier, very tragically, Heath Ledger did pass away on January 22nd, 2008. After filming was complete and six months before the film premiered, and this happened due to a mix of drugs leading to an overdose.
1: Yeah, I do remember that when preparing for the role as the Joker, he would lock himself, I think, in a hotel room, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Um, And would essentially get himself into the character of the Joker there. So.
0: And it's very, I when I think of Heath Ledger, I think, I don't think of him as the Joker because he is unrecognizable in the role. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, he definitely is unrecognizable.
0: And it's weird because I'm pretty sure he's Australian. And uh, I always think of his role and 10 Things I Hate About You.
1: Yep. Oh, yeah, that's right. With and, Julia Stiles, right?
0: Yeah, he does. He yeah. stars opposite Julia Stiles. And um, also another Batman cast that will be in the next movie is Joseph Gordon-Levitt is in that movie.
1: That's right. Yeah.
0: And it's weird because I always think of E. Ledger in that. And his hair is about the same length. He always Mm -hmm. sometimes had this longer hair. But he was... uh, He had an Australian accent. A kind of a deeper voice. And a very charming guy. In this he completely changed his voice. It's so incredible how he changes his voice in this.
1: Oh yeah. yeah His his entire performance like I mentioned earlier. Is incredibly iconic. uh, Because this was the thing that... I would say helped th- this movie become as popular as it is now is because of the performance of the Joker. He's the main villain here. If the performance didn't work, there would be a big issue. So this is the thing I think that really helped the Dark Knight just launch into great, uh, tremendous success, I would say, in the box office.
0: Uh, yeah, absolutely. His performance and also his death shortly afterwards yeah did give this movie did give his performance i i don't know i don't want to be insensitive but almost this mythic quality of Mm -hmm. his performance was so incredible and it's really sad because um he was uh 28 years old
1: yeah he was really young
0: when he filmed this around 27 28 and he died shortly before his 29th birthday um now it should be noted that this was actually um not Heath Ledger's last film. Um, and and I just should note also in 2006, he was nominated for a lead actor in Brokeback Mountain. Oh, that's right. Yeah. One of the technical notes that is different in this movie is they shot this movie with IMAX cameras.
1: That's right. It was pretty early on in its infancy. The IMAX camera was, I know that they accidentally destroyed one when they were filming this as well. They, one of they, the like four that existed or something like that.
0: I was watching it on the special features, and you can watch it get obliterated. Oh no! Yeah, and it was sad because yeah, there was actually only three of them in existence.
1: Yeah, they were at the time very few, and they were they are very expensive because they're shooting on a much wider frame, and they're made for screens that are huge.
0: Oh so, yeah, the, yeah, I, big, the IMAX. Kind of big deal. The IMAX negative, like the film is gigantic. Yeah. The reels are gigantic, is very large and expensive, but it gave them a completely different feel for the movie. It gave them a completely epic feel. And I know when this film came out, that really also affected audiences' perspective on this movie. Yep. And for the opening scene where they're breaking into the bank, they were trying to figure out how to not do just a static shot with an IMAX camera. And so they're trying to get the IMAX camera, they're trying to move it along and they kind of rigged it onto this thing and it just sheared completely off the rig and it just tumbled to the ground.
1: Oh no.
0: And so IMAX cameras were super heavy yeah. and uh, thankfully it was okay, but they did destroy the other one in the car chase scene. The footage, the footage survived. So that footage is in the movie. But then oh, it cuts good. right before you see the camera and just obliterate itself.
1: Okay. Oh, geez. Yeah those, yeah, those IMAX cameras are freaking huge. They're monsters.
0: Well, listeners, if you haven't seen The Dark Knight and you don't want the film spoiled for you, then go ahead and click pause right now. Go ahead and check out the film and come back and click play and we'll be ready to talk about it. Shortly after the events of Batman Begins, the mob is on the run. Now that Carmine Falcone is gone. They're being prosecuted by the new district attorney, Harvey Dent, played by Aaron Eckhart, who just so happens to be Rachel Dawes, who is now played by Maggie Gyllenhaal. She just so happens to be his new boyfriend. Meanwhile, to make matters more complicated, a new player is in town, an agent of chaos, the Joker, played by Heath Ledger. The Joker is stealing from the mob, and the mob is working with Chinese businessman Lau played by Chin Han, who just took all of the mob's money, aside from what the Joker took, and hid it as he flees to China. It just so happens Wayne Enterprises is also working with Lao. Unfortunately, he doesn't realize what he's gotten himself into. Get Lao to roll over on the mob, and Dent can take them all down. Batman, reprised by Christian Bale, extradites Lao from Hong Kong, and Dent and Rachel take down the mob. None of this stops the Joker from continuing his plan of wreaking havoc. His goal is to get the Batman to reveal himself and break his one rule, that of no murder, which would inevitably lead to his arrest and the city to entirely lose faith in justice. If the Batman doesn't turn himself in, then people will die every day. First, he nearly murders Rachel at Bruce's fundraiser. Then he succeeds in assassinating a judge and Commissioner Loeb, reprised by Colin McFarlane. And then he attempts to assassinate the mayor, played by Nestor Carbonell but he gets Lieutenant Gordon instead, who is reprised by Gary Oldman. In order to end the madness, Gotham's white knight, Harvey Dent, turns himself in as the Batman because he knows without Batman, Gotham will be lost. While Dent is being transported to prison, the Joker nearly destroys Dent, the Batman, and the entire police force in a wild car chase. The Batmobile is utterly destroyed, but Batman isn't left stranded. Little did we know hidden within the Batmobile was the Batpod, an incredibly powerful motorcycle. Finally, the Joker is captured by not just any police officer, but Gordon, who isn't actually dead, and the mayor promotes him to commissioner. While in custody, the Joker reveals to Batman that he has Rachel and Dent captive in separate warehouses, thanks to the dirty cops Dent earlier warned Gordon about. Batman chooses to go after Rachel, who he still believes is waiting for him, after Gotham doesn't need the Batman, and Gordon goes after Dent. Unsurprisingly, in the Joker's sick mind, he mixed the addresses up, so Batman saves Dent and, shockingly, Rachel perishes. Later, Bruce learns that Rachel wasn't going to wait for him. She was going to marry Harvey, because she realized Bruce would always need Batman. While this is happening, the Joker stages his escape and plans one last test for the citizens of Gotham. Now, if Batman's identity is revealed by anyone other than Batman himself, he will blow up one of the hospitals in Gotham. He visits Dent, whose face is partially horribly disfigured from barely escaping his explosive captivity. It is during their meeting 2 faces is born, and he goes on a killing rampage of those involved in his and his hopeful wife's ruin, leaving his victim's fate up to chance. The Joker's final test is getting a majority of the citizens of Gotham out of the city onto ferry boats, and that's where he plans on the haves and haves-not utterly annihilating each other. One ferry boat is filled with private citizens. The other is filled with Arkham's worst criminals. In similar fashion to Rachel and Harvey's test, he gives the detonator to the citizens and the felons. Who is worse? The Joker is banking on when fear completely overtakes people, then they'll lose their morality and will ultimately kill to preserve themselves. Except the Joker is wrong. The felons throw away the detonator, and the citizens just can't bring themselves to cross that line. Speaking of such, Lucius Fox, reprised by Morgan Freeman, is helping Batman find the Joker through the use of a highly illegal spy technology. Fox assures Batman as long as his tech resides at Wayne Enterprises, then he won't be there. Thankfully, once Fox types his name in, after using it, the machine self-destructs. After the citizens of Gotham choose to retain their morality, the Joker's supposed plan going awry causes enough distraction for the Batman to barely apprehend him, before the joker can fall to his death but the night isn't over two-face has now kidnapped gordon's family and taken them to the place where rachel died batman arrives shortly after asking two-face to hold responsible those involved to which two-face replies fair enough he shoots batman and then points the gun at himself but batman jumps up and takes him over the building causing dent to perish Both Batman and Gordon realize that if they allow the citizens to know Dent became a murderer, then the Joker would win. People would lose hope in the goodness of humanity. If the best of them fell, then all hope is lost. So Batman takes it upon himself to become the villain. He's not the hero the city needs right now. He will take the blame for the greater good as the police chase the Dark Knight into an unknown world that hunts the Bat as credits roll.
1: Oh, boy. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, it's a very dense plot, but kind of like the same with uh, Batman Begins. I wouldn't say that there is one wasted moment in this story that is two and a half hours long. Everything that's here is here for a reason and is extremely important and integral to the overall plot.
0: Yes, this shows that we are in the hands of a master storyteller that is able to take... Because this movie is like 153 minutes or something really long like that. Um, It's really getting up to that, getting close. I count the two hour and 45 minute mark as a very long movie. Yes. And it's getting close to that mark. But like you said, this is a streamlined narrative that is really purposeful. There's no excess fat. There has a clear goal in mind and they just go for it.
1: Yeah. And I noticed, I noticed the last movie, one of my main criticisms of it was that I found the first half to be really interesting because of how it explores all of its main themes that mostly being fear. And I noted that in the last half, while they still do explore that it's something that I feel they focus more closer to action than they did, you know, building those main themes here. I thought they did. I thought Christopher Nolan did a much better job at, both exploring the ideas and the main themes of the movie, that being chaos versus order, and then, but also stringing along different action scenes to keep the action going and keeping that flow so nice. So that was something that I noted this one time around, or this last time around, is that I thought this is a much better paced movie, especially when you compare it to Batman Begins.
0: Oh, it's much better paced. And it's also able to keep its emotional resonance throughout the of the runtime, I would say. And especially once we get to the halfway point, which you said is the gigantic chase with the semi-truck and the helicopter and the SWAT cars and the Batmobile. Once that happens, then it's just this like downward spiral of desperation.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, they blow up a hospital. Uh, They uh pot toss everybody on fairies. they do a there's a lot of stuff that still happens but because of all the chaos uh it feels like it's just like a lightning fire almost in the last few minutes of the movie
0: oh it does because well first of all we believe for a chunk of the movie that commissioner gordon is assassinated and he's dead and i believed it the first right. time i saw it right and but for actuality rachel dies right And that shocked me. That completely shocked me they were going to go there, especially because you thought that she was going to be with Bruce. You had a lot of hope for them, especially in the end of Batman Begins. And then it's like, surprise, we're pulling that rug out from under you. And she dies. And
1: and there's even a scene really early on when uh, Bruce is uh, throwing the fundraiser for Harvey Dent and they have the conversation outside where he says maybe, you know, Batman might not be needed in the near future. It might be honestly be Harvey Dent that takes Batman's place. And so we get start building that, uh, that emotional connection between the two of them and how it's become more complex because Rachel has kind of moved on and she's now focusing more on Harvey Dent. So even if he was to give up Batman and give it and have Harvey Dent take more or less his place, Rachel might not be there for him. So it's really, it makes it like they're, uh, the relationship a little bit more complex, especially when it gets to that moment when she dies. It's very, very sudden and has a very big impact because that's kind of the hope that Batman had leaving the last movie and now it's gone.
0: That is the shocking moment also is that she it has a new boyfriend. She has Harvey Dent with whom they share a common interest, but they're both right. able to publicly help the city without living in fear or without really splitting time or creating you know, priorities like that. So that yeah. really surprised me as well. And I will say this is the one time in a movie that I can think of where a, a recast doesn't really mess with me because Maggie Gyllenhaal is taking the place of Katie Holmes.
1: Yeah, and I would say that the, even the character of uh, of Rachel in this movie has a much more prominent role than she did in the last one. Um, that be probably partially because of Harvey Dent, uh, because they share a very similar ideal, uh, between the two of them. And yeah, I, I, agree with you. I think I find Katie Holmes to be more of a standout than I do, uh, Maggie. You <laughs> I feel she very well fits the role of Rachel.
0: Watching them in this close proximity. I did miss some of Katie Holmes qualities because this Rachel feels like after undergoing the experience in Batman begins. She's much more jaded and yeah. a little more cynical on how things are going to turn out because she tells Bruce, she says, don't make me your one uh, hinge of normalcy. Right. right. And she says, I got to move on with my life. And the world is a different place from where it was from the events of the previous film. So her character has evolved somewhat. And I think how her character is portrayed in this film is necessary. I'm not quite sure the Katie Holmes stylization of the character would have carried over very well into this one.
1: But it is also interesting to me too, because the character of Rachel feels kind of like the Harvey Dent, how how the Harvey Dent is to the city of Gotham, Rachel feels, Rachel is that kind of same symbol, symbolic character to Bruce Wayne Batman because he's in some ways is looking for hanging up the coat and finding ways to, you know, retire this persona that he has now that he's, by the beginning of the movie, has almost completely restored hope and fixed the city of Gotham. And so when Rachel dies, uh, Batman has a small scene where he almost gives up because he's just like, what am I supposed to do now? You know, what hope is there left? And it's Alfred who tells him that uh, you need to get up and keep going. And it's, again, helps, just reinforce one of the main messages of the movie, which is continue to hold on to hope uh, and continue to move forward.
0: Yeah, I did note in the last film that Rachel was Bruce's moral compass in many ways. When he was going astray, she was there to bring him back. And now he really doesn't have her to rely on anymore. And he does use Alfred more so as a fatherly figure in this one. Then in the last one, in many ways, Alfred was more so kind of his caretaker. And this one, he and father figure. I would probably say more so a mentor actually, um, definitely giving him some life advice that Alfred had gone through in the past. And we get a little insight into that as well. So this brings me to my claim that in some ways, this feels a little bit more like a soft reboot than a direct sequel. And the reason I say that is because at least narratively, there's very little connection to the first movie. This movie picks up where the mob was left in shambles, but that's really not the main point of this story. Um, And I would say that if you're really not paying close attention to this whole mob subplot and I, yeah, I would call it mostly a subplot. um, I would say that it doesn't quite, um, it doesn't quite, I, I would see the connection because I never, whenever I would watch this movie, I never saw any connection to the mob and Batman begins and the mob in the dark night. I just, it's just not something they really want you to focus on.
1: Yeah. they are definitely, they're definitely taking off uh, from the remains of what happened in the, and Batman begins, but in some ways, yeah, you probably could watch this without seeing the, without seeing Batman begins and, wouldn't be too confused on what exactly is happening cuz they do a very well job a very good job at explaining like what happened before in the last movie and where are we from there. So in some ways I guess I can see why uh this would be considered somewhat of a soft reboot, but I think that if you're going to watch The Dark Knight, you might as well watch uh, Batman Begins because you also have the Rachel subplot that I feel is also very important for the character of uh, Bruce Wayne Batman.
0: Absolutely. The Rachel um, plot to the film, that character arc is necessary to watch that in Batman Begins and see how yep. that comes through and see how that does affect some of Bruce's choices in this movie as well. Um but it, I feel like you definitely could watch The Dark Knight and not know about Batman Begins because this they do such a good job of, of containing this story within yeah, itself. Um, and you do. You got new characters. We're introduced to a Harvey Dent, first of all, as a new character. And the mayor plays more of a role. Um, they're not in the same location. You don't have the Batcave. You have this new... Uh, underneath uh, the docks or whatever it is underneath the shipping containers. Wayne yep. lives at the top of a penthouse now instead of Wayne Manor, which was burned down. So that's something I do appreciate is there are arcs, but these stories are contained within themselves. So they do right. kind of nicely lead into each other. And I would say the biggest thing, the, the largest departure is, well, aside from a brand new bat suit, which I really like, is the color palette is completely different in this movie.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah,
0: because in Batman Begins, there was a lot of like yellows. It was more so focused on this dirty griminess of Gotham and a lot of close up shots as well, but the Dark Knight uses a lot of blues and yeah, a lot of day all... shots too.
1: Yes, there are a lot of blues. And part of that is because blue is usually symbolic of uh, of death. Mm. Um, and there is a lot of death in this movie. There, are, that, While the death count might not be necessarily anything that is on the, on the same level as Rambo, however, the characters that die are very big names. One of them being Rachel, another one being the police commissioner. Uh, and, and for a, a good chunk of the movie, Gordon as well. So the death count here, while it may seem rather small compared to some other movies that have also pretty rather big death counts. This is one where I feel because of what happens in the movie and because of those characters roles in the story, that's what makes their deaths impactful.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The deaths are far more meaningful in this movie, especially because we were established with these characters in the previous one. And usually you get, usually characters die at the end of the second film in a trilogy, maybe, if any character is going to die, but not throughout the movie. And that's just that yeah. feeling of panic and chaos that really grips the film. And uh, I do like the carry over some of those themes from Batman Begins, such as when um, Ducard or Ra's al Ghul says the, the word is panic or the keyword is fear. Talking about yeah. that a lot as well. Now, I think what took most people by surprise is the, this film has some incredibly deep themes. This film is basically watching a ph- philosophical treatise just being played out with yeah. people and dress up with superheroes.
1: Yeah, it, it definitely is.
0: The theme I recognize as probably being the strongest one. I, well, not just the theme, but I would probably say the worldview is that of postmodernism where there isn't a reasonable standard to the way people view or interact with the world any longer.
1: Yeah, definitely the biggest one for me is that main theme of chaos versus order. Mm-hmm. Yes. Because for a good chunk of the movie, it's very much a yin and yang kind of feel where uh, and the Joker even comes out right out and says it in the interrogation scene, uh, one cannot exist without the other. Uh, Joe, The Joker, the ideal of the Joker, that being chaos doesn't exist without the ideal of Batman, that being justice and order. Um, And the Joker's plan is to show that, you know, given enough time, a person can go insane, no matter how good or bad they are. And when we find out at the very end, that's maybe not necessarily the case, as is shown with the fairy scene, that even if people are given, you know, an uncertain choice and an uncertain uh, outcome, they might still make, you know, Not an unreasonable decision, and they might not follow through with something that may keep themselves, well, keep them safe. Instead, they'll sit back on their ideals and the morals that they've been growing up with.
0: And that is the most—that idea of this moral relativism that you're talking about. That is the most dangerous worldview that has captivated us since then, since this whole time, and I would say for, you know, a couple decades ago as well. Is that. What's right for me may not be right for you, but that doesn't Mm -hmm. mean I'm still right. And you hear that a lot. You say, people say, oh, you need to speak your truth or your truth. And that is wildly dangerous because that's exactly what the Joker is advocating for. Exactly. He he is saying that in a nihilistic world where um, order doesn't matter, then chaos has to have the same amount of weight to it as well. The same amount of. Um, value to it, essentially.
1: And it's interesting, too, because the Joker's plan is interesting because usually, you know, the villain of a story wants the same outcome or wants the same insert thing here that the hero wants. Uh, The only difference between the hero and the villain, or one of the main differences between the hero and the villain, is what they believe in and how they go about that, right? Here, the Joker's, I guess... Uh, goal is to as he says disrupt the established order and everything will c- become chaos his what he's going for is just complete chaos in the city right and that's really about it only thing he's here for is just to mess with Batman and that is all in and of itself extremely dangerous because without a clear motive as to what kind of what thing he wants it, he becomes a very dangerous idea and a very dangerous person. So th- there's a great scene when uh, the Joker gets all the money back from Lao, sets Lao the top and then just burns it and says, yeah, I'm not here for the money. I don't care about the money. What I'm here for is to make a statement. What I'm here for is to change the way that Gotham works. I'm here to disrupt everything. And that's, I think what makes the Joker so captivating is we don't know where he comes from, we don't know exactly what his goals are. All we know is that he's here to just dis- disrupt what has already been set, and that's all. And that makes him his character in some ways a lot of, pretty scary.
0: And it's yeah, exactly because it's scary because we can't reason with it.
1: Exactly, it, yeah. it
0: doesn't make any sense because usually these people are going to hold the city for ransom or steal all of their money for power or to take over to have some sort of mm-hmm. control. And he says, that's not my goal at all. My goal is to simply just to destroy everything. I'm going to burn it down and I'm going to revel in the chaos that ensues. And I'm also going to prove a point, the point that you brought up earlier, that given enough time and positioned in the right circumstances, that good people will become evil, Mm -hmm. that it will ultimately devolve into what Nietzsche called survival of the fittest. Right. And that's right. exactly what we see uh, played out time and again throughout this movie in increasingly worse situations where more and more people's lives are at stake. Like with Harvey and Rachel, it was one person. But then he puts people on ferry boats where they're literally yep. stranded. And he says, now they get to decide who is it going to be. And in all likelihood, um, I'm wondering who would actually, if one of them did choose to blow the other one up, would they blow themselves up or would it be the other boat? We don't know.
1: Yeah, it's very hard to tell what exactly that outcome could have been. Uh, Now, obviously, the outcome is uh, that neither boat does it. Um, The criminal boat throws the detonator into the water, and the boat with the innocent civilians, they just, the guy who picks it up, who says he's going to do it, puts the detonator back in the box and sits back down because he can't bring himself to, I guess, take on that responsibility of killing However many criminals, even though, as he says, they've had their chance, uh, they might as well, we might as well survive instead of them, but can't bring himself to actually fulfill that.
0: Yeah, and the Joker wants to play that, wants them to play some sort of like sick god where the Joker himself tries to be this uh, chaotic god as well, where there is no order to anything and you basically just kill or be killed. And what's even more fascinating is... In some ways, the Joker forces uh, and, and it's because he does bring about this radical postmodern world and he forces our heroes to adapt to that in ways that are unethical, yeah. that aren't right. And I think that's the best of that is portrayed there towards the end where Batman has to use this technology to spy on people in order to find the Joker. And then the Joker is getting cops to come to his side in some ways by saying, if uh, whoever's going to kill Kyle Reese in the next 10 minutes, then I won't blow up that hospital or something. Right. So we see a cop right. about to shoot an innocent man. And then Batman has to fight the SWAT team <laughs> in order to save innocent lives. And Gordon pulls his gun on Batman. And uh, it, it just all gets so out of control. I mean, it's, it's utterly brilliant. Uh, oh, yeah. how how uh, they write it and how it's all played out and how we become so intensely emotionally invested in all of this, it's, it's crazy, it's amazing.
1: Yeah, it's, it's absolutely insane because everyone's always talked about how well-written the Joker is, and that's absolutely true because what the Joker stands for isn't something like we have just been talking about, cannot be reasoned with. Uh, I know that Alfred tells an allegorical story and in in actually a couple, of, a couple of points where he talks about how they were trekking down this guy in Burma um, who was stealing these rubies. And they come to find out the guy wasn't stealing them for a profit, he was stealing them because he just wanted to watch the world burn. He didn't care about the money. He didn't care about the wealth that he would gain from stealing whatever he stole. What he cared about was just disruption and chaos. And so, as uh, Alfred said, the way that we ended up, you know, finally getting to him is we burned the forest down. And that finally led us to you know, actually end up apprehending the man. And that's kinda of what happens here with Batman uh, in some ways where he has to not only unethically uh, construct that X-ray or sonar machine that he has from uh, that Lucius planted that idea of, But at the same time, he in some ways killed Harvey Dent when he tackled him and pushed him over that ledge at the very end in order to save Commissioner Gordon's, I guess, family at that point, Mm -hmm. um, in order to save his family. It's it's unfortunate that that he had to do what he had to do, but that was the only way that he could stop it.
0: And it is very ironic when Alfred says, some men just want to watch the world burn. And he said, so what did you do? And he said, we basically had to burn down a little part of that world to stop him ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And so what I get from that is you have to cause some destruction of your own in order to stop the ultimate evil. So I did find it interesting. Also, um, I was reading this book. It's called Hollywood Worldviews by Brian Godala. He's a screenwriter. I highly recommend you check out the book because he dedicates a section to the Dark Knight and he says about the film, if life has no transcendental meaning, then chaos has as much value as order. That is the meaning behind the claim. I'm not a monster. I'm just ahead of the curve. So Joker's trying to basically really push this nihilist worldview. And he even quotes Nietzsche when he says, whatever doesn't kill you makes you, he says stranger, but the actual quote is stronger.
1: Right. Yeah. That's. I mean, that the whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger is a pretty famous quote mm-hmm. as well. Yes.
0: And that does further play into that whole, um, survival of the fittest. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do love the part in the movie where the Joker is ultimately foiled because he truly believes humanity will fall into evil, but the evil ones, the felons do the right thing. And it's a really incredible moment of redemption and good triumphing over evil right there towards the end.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I know also uh, one of the things I talk about is uh, that of Harvey Dent's reputation because Harvey Dent at the this moment of the movie, this far into it, um, has gone from what Batman has always stood for and in some ways becomes, in, I, I guess physically, in a lot of ways, becomes the, Bat, becomes the Batman and turns himself in when he calls for the Batman's arrest, right? So it's interesting to see how fast um, one, I guess, yeah, I guess how fast and how far the Joker pushes uh, Harvey Dent to, I guess, just go insane and go to a point where he's turned completely against the morals that he stood for. Maybe just a few days prior, and so it's really interesting to see um, here at the very end when we have when where they talk about how okay, well, what are we supposed to do about Harvey Dent's reputation if we if we expose that um, he did what he did at the very end of this movie, then that will break every, uh, that will break the entire uh, city's spirit. And it's in some ways, maybe unethical, but I guess, depending on how you look at it, that they decide not to tell the truth in the situation. Mm -hmm. And they decide to look at the good things that Harvey did rather than what his life ended up, uh, unfortunately ended up being.
0: Yes. And that is one thing that, that's one thing you gotta wrestle with right there. Yeah. Is um when he says sometimes the truth isn't good enough. They need more. They need their faith to be rewarded. Mm-hmm. And so Batman's art does seem to indicate that he has somewhat compromised in his beliefs there at the end. The Joker has caused him to see the world differently, which in some ways means the Joker does have some slight victory by changing the good guy's worldview.
1: Right. And I think that's I think that's I think what leads to this movie being so interesting to me is that kind of in the way that we talked about in The Prestige, how there really isn't a good character per se. There is, It's kind of hard to pinpoint who exactly the protagonist and the antagonist is of the story. It's just two men having a rivalry for various reasons. Um, this one is kind of the same way. At The time that it ends, it's kind of hard to say, you know, was every choice that was made by the good guys and the bad guys Completely ethical and the right way of going about it. It's it's hard to say. Uh, now, of course, there are defi- more definite roles of good and bad in this movie than there is in the Prestige. But my my point is that when it gets down to it, you know, was what the heroes did and what the was what, what was what the heroes did in the situation a good thing? And as we've kind of been talking about, not necessarily they had to go to some unethical moments or do some unethical things in order to stop that unmovable force as Joker says.
0: And I think that's completely true to real life and just how we operate in the world as well is we always want to seem to do the perfect right thing, but we end up doing something that we know probably isn't the best choice or maybe the exact right choice, but we're trying to do it for the greater good.
1: Right, exactly.
0: And I mean... For instance, you could uh, use, like, was it necessarily moral to drop atomic bombs on those people in Japan and they all died? But then you have to factor out if we would have done a ground invasion in Japan, so many more people would have died and the war would have gone on even longer. So in a way, this whole narrative is very much a microcosm of kind of like world, how like just like world history has played out. Like these are like archetypes of Mm -hmm. characters and villains and uh just truths of that have been throughout the world and um the one thing is though that i can't completely get on board with though is when he says that definite uh postmodern the ultimate kind of postmodern message is that sometimes the truth isn't good enough and so instead of dealing with the fallout of harvey dent and uh, hoping to repair that then they basically they can't really tell the truth they have to make up a story that is close to the truth but not quite and i find that interesting because we he dealt with that in memento um it's true yeah yeah in memento um uh what's his name he uh the guy with the must teddy Teddy tells Mm -hmm. our protagonist here, he says, so what everybody lies to themselves to make themselves feel better. Right. And that film was used as like a caution, that was used as a cautionary tale about if you do that, then, you know, you're going to end up with some severe consequences. Um, But this seems to kind of go against that warning and say, like, sometimes it's necessary to tell a lie in order to, Uh, make things better. It's definitely something hard to grapple with. Something I probably can't completely get on board with because it's, it, that seems a little cynical of Nolan himself to say we can't quite believe in the truth. Um, especially in this postmodern world, we have to kind of believe in a fragment of it in order to make sure everything's okay.
1: Yeah, it is an interesting. Ideal that he brings up here in the latter half of the movie, and I mean to be fair, this movie isn't necessarily the most, uh, I guess, black and white movie that is out there. Right. Uh, everything here is incredibly complex. There's so many moving variables to understand on different characters' points of view, especially at the end of the movie when the movie ends, because. Yeah, while the good guys are still the good guys in the end, they did some you know not so good things. And here's another another good example is that of Harvey Dent. You know, while what what do we do if the literally the White Knight, as they call him, um, is turns bad in the end? He turns into the Dark Knight. I guess you could I guess you could say he turns into something that he completely and totally did not stand for just a few days prior. How do you go about that situation. It's incredibly complex, it was, it's hard to say because on the one hand, it's the truth, yes. Harvey Dent unfortunately went down this path, partially because of the Joker, uh, and partially because of the events that happened to him. Um, but at the same time, he did all this—all these good things. It's, it's really hard to say, uh, I guess, which path is the right one to go down. The truth in my mind seems like the better path, but what's the outcome of that going to be? And as they say, the the city might actually fall into the Joker, what the Joker was going for all along. They might not be very okay with, you know, Harvey Dent not being the white knight that they had thought that he was.
0: And at the same time, Batman taking the blame, I really loved because that's also yeah. very much a Christ narrative in a way, Yeah, is this transcendental figure who is still very much relatable to people and is directly intervening to essentially save their world as they know it, he takes on the sins for which he did not commit at all. Yeah, and that's and I would yeah. say,
1: yeah, and I would say that that's the way that this movie goes about. I guess expressing some of these ideas is it does in the end kind of leave it up to partially audience interpretation and audiences' beliefs because everything here is just a bit too much too complex to find. I guess. Not necessarily where the director lands, but like who is right, what is right? What exactly is the good thing, best thing to do in this situation?
0: And that's exactly what Nolan wants us to wrestle with here at the end yeah. of the movie is how do we deal with truth in the world? Uh, are you just going to believe your truth? Are you going to believe in a standard and a variation of it? Ultimately, I will say this movie does come down on the side of redemption, and that very much Christ narrative as well. So I, I really love it for that. And we also have to remember this is the middle of a trilogy. Right. So if Nolan would have just left, if he had not made another Batman movie after that, I would be pretty disappointed because I would ultimately say this is not a satisfying ending. There's, it's not a very rewarding or fulfilling ending to have it this way. Um, and when we get to The Dark Knight Rises in a couple weeks, we will talk about where ultimately that worldview that we're left with here, where it leads to, and how it's changed because it's very different. It has very different yeah. Um, yeah. ramifications and how people deal with it in the next one. Exactly. A couple other um, themes and worldviews I saw was this is also a portrayal of America's war on terror.
1: Yes. Yeah. That's, it's very much, uh, I would say the Joker is kind of like the personification of, of that. Uh, I think it's kind of hard to miss, especially in 2008. Um, I think it's kind of hard to miss.
0: Definitely domestic terrorism as well. This was also when Occupy Wall Street was occurring. Yep. Um, which is clearly has a lot of parallels to that as well. Also, yes. I'm thinking of the Patriot Act, which was when the government, in order to stop terrorism, they basically had to skirt around the Constitution and invade yep. some of our privacies, um, just like Batman is using our cell phones to spy on us here at the end of the movie. Um, also, definitely some like free market capitalism versus... Just the economic destruction of anarchism. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's a lot crammed into this movie, but it all plays out so well. There's We could go on for another couple hours probably dissecting everything in this movie.
1: Oh, yeah, and it's it's also interesting too because whereas we noted in the first in Batman Begins, that movie was definitely hearkening more towards uh, the fallout of 9-11 and the, I guess, initial feelings that came from that. And then this one's dealing with the aftermath. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, in terms of political, um, in terms of politics, what decisions were made after 9-11, and it's very much the, again, the aftermath, what we did after the fact um, of that of that event that was so horrible. So it's, it's drawing that parallel, just as you were talking about, to I, uh, Occupy Wall Street, the Patriot Act, things like that, that happened um, in our culture, especially back in, I guess it was, It's more targeting, I guess, around 2005, kind of where Batman Begins came out, but it's definitely uh, covering those ideas and those fears in those uh, current events at the time.
0: Yeah, and of course, 2008 was when we had the economic, that was around the time of the economic recession, the housing crisis, the economy was in the tank. And so I think a lot of people, well, a lot of adults especially, would have resonated with what they were seeing in this movie definitely now aside from just the themes of this movie this film in many ways is a technical marvel oh yeah oh yeah so i was watching a lot of the special features and just seeing how they achieved a lot of this stuff and a majority like a majority of it is practical
1: Yes, pr- almost everything that they do, with the exception of a couple of things, is practical. Uh, I know I watched a feature on the flipping of the semi truck, which I know is pretty iconic. Mm-hmm. Uh, that happens on the South Street, by the way. I've walked down the street before, um, where they actually where they flip the semi. They put like a grill on the front and they... Like, uh, they tightened against or they tightened the, uh, the trailer so it wouldn't, you know, flop around (laughs) when it flipped over and they actually flipped it. Yep. They did. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool actually how they did it. They
0: actually flipped a semi truck, which was crazy. Um, when they smashed the garbage truck, that was actually a one third scale miniature.
1: Okay, I was wondering uh, how much how many miniatures they used in this movie. I could tell a couple of times, but I wonder what they how they did that. If it was all CG or if it was miniatures or what the deal was. Yeah, it
0: was miniatures, which is incredible because it That's, looks real.
1: Yeah, it's very impressive. Um,
0: one of the more impressive things as well is the uh, Hong Kong jump. Is that real too? So it's sort of real. <laughs> Um, so they, Christopher Nolan said, he said, I wanted to make the jump from the building real. And they actually tested it out. They had a stunt guy who was attached to a bungee cord, which was attached to a helicopter overhead. And the guy legitimately jumps, swan dives off the building and goes for it. And I'm like, oh man, that would be so scary. Um, but basically, um, Hong Kong was like, yeah, I don't, we don't know if we want you having like helicopters and people jumping off buildings in the middle of downtown and no one's like the bureaucrats made everything difficult. And so, (laughs) and so basically what they did was they took real footage of that environment and they scanned it into the computer and then they created a gigantic green screen soundstage and the guy jumped off of that sound stage, which was, I don't know, 100 feet or something like that. And then they green screened okay. in the buildings. Okay, gotcha. So they were going to do it, though. But yeah. they couldn't. It
1: was those those dang bureaucrats. Those bureaucrats
0: made it difficult for them. <laughs> um, but everything else was practical. They literally crashed a Lamborghini Mar-a-Lago or whatever it's called. Mir And it's cool because that um the name of the Lamborghini is actually Italian for uh the bat.
1: That's right. Yeah, I do remember reading about that.
0: Uh also Hans Zimmer uh created nine thousand bars of music just for the Jokers just Whoa. for the Jokers theme.
1: Wow, I do know that the Jokers theme, uh the notes that are played on I guess a, I guess are cello Um Mm-hmm. Show, that's it. Yeah. The notes that are played is a D and a C. That's why it, there's a lot of dissonance mm-hmm. there. Yep. Um, but at the same time, it's also iconic. And because of DC comics, it makes a little bit more oh, sense. Perfect.
0: <laughs> no, no, it yes. all makes sense. <laughs> it's <laughs> crazy, though, because Nolan said he listened to all 9000 bars on his way to Hong Kong, which <laughs> kind of drove him insane. But he's like, I did it for Hans. And yeah. You should go back and listen to some of the music that didn't make it into the cut, because it's really bizarre, but it's really incredible. And did this movie not get nominated for best original score? Like, uh, I'm looking now. No, it just, it won for sound editing and uh, sound mixing. No no score though, that's interesting. Oscar for the score here. So good. I mean, the score is incredible.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what uh, the academy is thinking. Whatever.
0: Also, no one said he wanted to blow up more things than anyone had ever blown up in a movie before.
1: I mean, Christopher Nolan at this point is already insane. Um, <laughs> he can which do it I know week. he'll be continue to get even more insane as uh, these movies go along, but
0: yeah, so he got approval to bl- to blow up the that actual building, the hospital, they call the hospital. That is a real building. They blew up. No CGI. Yep.
1: I know that when they were, yeah, I know that when they were blowing it up, it actually didn't go correctly. So that's that part. And when just Oakwood's walking out and the pyrotechnics are going off and then they just all of a a sudden stop and he stops and he turns around and he pushes the detonator a few times and it's like, and then it all, then they finally start going off. That was a mistake. They, uh, That was not planned at all. But Chris Nolan kept told the camera operators to just keep rolling. And then, of course, Movie Magic ended up being Movie Magic. And uh, Heath Ledger played played perfectly off of that.
0: And that's amazing because that is somewhat dangerous to walk away from a building that's about to explode.
1: Yeah, just a little bit. Yeah, I
0: know Chris Nolan said it was incredible how Heath Ledger kept in character the entire time And Mm -hmm. didn't let anything that was going on affect him. Even when the building did finally start to come down, he's still going. And they did actually shoot footage that has never before been seen of the Joker riding in the school bus as the building just collapses around them. And how he never looks at the building once. And they thought that was really cool how he just doesn't care about this destruction. He doesn't look, doesn't find it fascinating. They ultimately felt it didn't work with the movie, so they probably made the right choice.
1: That's mm-hmm. interesting. I haven't heard about that. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, the other thing is, Christopher Nolan did want to redesign the bat suit completely before Batman begins. But he basically okay. said we just didn't have enough time with when we talked to the studio right. and the sh- when the film was supposed to begin shooting and going into production and whatnot. So this was their opportunity to completely redesign the bat suit. And I got to say, it looks so good and it makes the Batman begins suit look. Eh, not so good.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of funny because the new suit is used for most of the movie. So in the opening scenes when Batman has his old suit on and compared to the rest of the movie, it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting choice. <laughs> yeah, he,
0: I always forget about that. He does have a different suit between yep. films. Mm-hmm. My favorite parts of this movie are the chase on Wacker, on Wacker Street, the underground chase.
1: Oh, yes, yes.
0: It's probably everybody's favorite. <laughs> but
1: oh yeah that's like a, that's mine as well probably one of my favorite scenes is that as well
0: and i would say the end where everything is just coming down to the wire where batman is having to save the doctors fight the swat and by the way um when those swat people go over the side of that building they are lo- they are actually going over the side of that building that is a oh, practical oh. effect oh dear yeah, <laughs> that's scary um and then he has to deal with the joker And then I love how that's not the end of the movie. He has to deal with Harvey Dent. I would say the scene with Gordon and Dent and Batman in the building where Rachel died, that's probably, that is probably a perfect scene, I would say. One of those rare Mm -hmm. scenes in a movie where it all comes together so perfectly and then everything just wraps up. Uh, That is one of the most memorable scenes, I would say, is when they're all kind of discussing uh, all of the trouble that's come about.
1: Yeah, I agree. That scene, it's and also the music there works. Mm-hmm. I think some of the best it has in the entire movie because oh, yeah. you get this just this really fearful sense that this kid that you know at the right at that time Harvey Dent has a hold of and is about to shoot. He might actually pull the trigger. Uh, we've already seen what, what the Joker is capable of and what he's willing to do. Was is Harvey Dent going to do the same thing? Luckily, though, Batman saves the day. Um, but there is this sense that I felt um, when I was watching it for the first time. I was like, oh, crap, maybe he'll actually, maybe Chris Nolan will actually go there. Maybe he'll actually pull the trigger and kill a kid. Mm. Um, it felt like he could do it. It felt like he he might be thinking about it. Of course, he doesn't, but it does a really good job at building that suspense in that scene.
0: Yeah, the movie has gone so dark and desperate. All cards are off the table. You don't know yes. what how that is going to play out. And just that utter like desperation and sacrifice there at the end is really incredible to watch unfold. And I do remember one of my viewings a few years back. I remember I was so emotionally invested within the movie that uh, I had with that whole uh, Harvey Dent scene there at the end. I had some tears coming up Mm -hmm. to the surface because I was like so into it. I'm like, it was so emotional for me.
1: Yeah, I believe it.
0: The closest thing that I'll say to being bad in this movie is some of this like exposition spilling moments, or just like philosophical treatise speeches we basically get, feels like yeah somewhat unnecessary. Where, and once again, yeah, it's like you can't have a movie with Michael Caine in it without story time with Michael Caine.
1: <laughs> of course, yeah, the wise and all powerful Michael Caine.
0: And there's nothing wrong with this with his story whatsoever, but sometimes it's like he has the perfect story in a Christopher Nolan movie to fit the situation. Um, like in The Prestige, yep. he talks about sailors he knew that were drowned. And then in this, he talks about burning down the jungle. There's just those times where it's like, wait, stop. We got to have these characters talk like when the Joker and Harvey didn't talk in the hospital and the Joker basically yep. explains his entire worldview and everything he believes in. I love the speech. I love the dialogue that is written. But at the same mm-hmm. time, it's just like, okay, what you're, you're talking so long here.
1: Yeah, no, I, I agree. There, are kind of like in Batman Begins. Um, it's also not as bad. There is a lot of exposition spilling with a lot of these characters. Um, and part of that is, the, as the, I guess the argument could be made part of that is because this movie is so complex that sometimes they just have to spell it out. So you understand it, but it is still a problem that I have is some of the dialogue, not all of it, but some of the dialogue of this movie is very in your face, uh, on the nose. Then I guess what I would, uh, I guess what I would consider to be dialogue that is a bit more subtle. So
0: Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for the dark Knight?
1: One of my fears coming back to this movie after being away from it for a while is I was afraid that my, I guess, 30 plus watchings in the past would affect my m- viewing experience now, where I go into it having liking it more because I've seen it before, because it's familiar, because it's nostalgic. So that's already kind of hard for me to get away from in the first place. But it is a movie that I think I found to be more interesting now than I think I have ever that I have ever thought about. Because as we're talking about, while there are a lot of really interesting themes here, they're also incredibly complex. There isn't exactly a a concrete answer to some of the things that are brought up here. And I think that's what makes this movie so interesting to me. And maybe even why I keep wanting to return to it back in the past is because I want to experience, I want to experience this again, but at the same time, I want to see something more. I want to maybe dive deeper into a character, think more on as to why they are the way that they are. So in that sense, it's a 10 out of 10, because the the way that the story was written just like, Pretty much every of all of Nolan's previous movies is master class. I think he's getting much, much better as a storyteller the more he makes movies. And so far, this is absolutely without a doubt the best No One has produced so far. So, yeah, I still love this movie. I still have some criticisms of it, uh, that being mostly the dialogue. Some of the editing can be kind of weird here and there, especially when it comes to the action scenes. Um, but This is the best action that no one has has directed. This is the best script that he's written. This is definitely the best overall film movie that he has made in his career so far. So at the end of the day, I absolutely still love The Dark Knight. Um, I think it's a very, very well done movie. Nine out of 10 for me.
0: The Dark Knight is one of those rare sequels that surpasses the original. Not just narratively, but also technically. No one took everything with Batman Begins and cranked it up to 11. Hans Zimmer's score is engrossing, the Nolan brothers' writing is their best work yet, and the performances from all involved, especially Heath Ledger, are ones for the ages. There's a reason this is considered one of the greatest films of all time. It's not a story about a hero trying to stop a villain. It's a story about the carnality of humanity's sinful side working to drag everyone down into the abyss of moral relativism, and a transcendental symbol saving an undeserving world from itself. In that sense, this is very much a Christ narrative. No one achieves what very few storytellers can, and by crafting compelling characters that are thrust into a downward-spiraling dark situation. The way he builds tension with the audience is truly incredible. Watching the Dark Knight is an experience. There are a few minor pieces of dialogue that come across as characters philosophizing their worldview but then the way they follow it through or influence other characters with it makes the narrative truly compelling enough to overlook some of this needless exposition spilling. There is a slightly troubling postmodern push where our hero ultimately sees that the truth isn't always good enough and certain lies must be told in order to keep people on the right track, but Nolan still does depict strong redemptive elements in heroes and villains. Not only is The Dark Knight one of the greatest superhero movies of all time, It is one of the greatest films of all time, especially in modernity. It is a truly remarkable film that smartly pits selfless individualism against selfish anarchism. The Dark Knight receives nine stars out of ten with a high recommend.
1: I guess I forgot to give my recommendation. Yes, a very high recommend. If you haven't seen it, I'm a little surprised um, because this is definitely a movie that I feel almost everyone has seen.
0: Uh, Yeah, considering it's got like 2 million ratings on IMDb or something crazy like that. Yeah, yeah. So in 2016, I gave the film a 10 out of 10. But upon this watching, I dropped it to a 9 because of those minor issues I had.
1: Yep. I think this is the very first movie I ever rated on IMDb. And I don't think my rating has changed until now, of course. Which now I gave it a 10 out of 10. Because again, it was one of my favorites of all time when I first watched it. Let me look here real quick. Yeah, Dark Knight, number one, very first rating on IMDb, 10 out of 10.
0: Nice, that's cool. So Alan, do you own the Blu-ray of this?
1: I do. I own actually the trilogy. I have the box set for the Dark Knight trilogy.
0: Nice. Did you buy that or was that a gift?
1: No, I bought that. It was actually pretty cheap. I think it was like 20 bucks at Walmart when I bought it. Yeah. And I think you can get it for 15 now. That's amazing. That was real cheap.
0: I got the Blu-ray with the slipcover. It's like the collector's edition. I got that when it first Ah. came out. It was a Christmas present from my grandmother.
1: Oh, very nice. Yeah. I I like to have the steelbook. There's a really cool rendition of it that is Batman on the Batpod. Uh, Um, Of course, the most famous and most widely accessible one is the one that everyone sees, and that's with Batman and then the uh, Bat symbol burning into a building behind him. But there's one steelbook out there and I kind of want it. It's with the bat pod.
0: I wish that my cover was Batman with the burnings bat symbol behind him. But mine is Batman uh, leaping out of a building on the bat pod.
1: Okay. For my slip yep. cover. That's the that's the steelbook I want is that cover.
0: Yeah. Um, but when you take off the slip cover, the regular case is uh, the Joker.
1: Okay. Interesting.
0: And you know what? I just realized I have proof. I need to look these pictures up. I have proof of me standing by a, a life-size poster of the Joker. or oh, really? Cut out at the theater when it first came out. Yeah. So for other recommendations, um, you should probably watch the Fritz Lang movie, Nolan said. And Nolan also said that he drew a lot of inspiration from the movie Heat, which was okay. a movie, uh, which was a narrative about the city, about a city. Gotcha. Um but I would say also watch Batman Gotham Knight cuz the animation is great and the story is pretty cool.
1: Yeah, I would definitely say Gotham Arkham Knight. Um I guess the uh Arkham Knight video games too oh, yeah. are some that really play off of The Dark Knight. Mm-hmm. Um and I guess it's a visual style. So I've seen par- I've seen pieces of it. I haven't played it myself, but I hear they're very good. So definitely play those if you are so looking for some more Chris for no one like Dark Knight Batman stuff.
0: Yeah, I did play the first game, and I liked it a lot. Uh, it's pretty pretty amazing. Mm, I'm excited to return to the others.
1: I know that Mark Hamill, uh, he reprises his role as the Joker, which is also iconic in that game, in one of the games at least.
0: Yeah, Mark Hamill and Kevin Conroy. And Kevin Conroy yep. is my favorite voice of the Batman. Yep. Well, of course, Christopher Nolan is not going to make his follow-up film The Dark Knight 2 or... Maybe The Dark Knight Returns, it's not going to be called that, and it's not even going to be that. His next film is going to be a brand new independent property, Inception.
1: Yes, I'm actually really excited to talk about that because I watched it with you in the theater. Yes. Uh, I think that was a very early known uh, film for me as well. Uh, So I'm excited to go back and and watch that movie again because uh, it's been a while since I've seen it. I actually just bought it off my cousin because he had the regular Blu-ray and the steel bucket. I bought the regular Blu-ray off him because I didn't have it yet. And I knew we were going to be recording it, so it's mine now. I own (laughs) it.
0: That's good. Yeah, I've owned that on Blu-ray for a long time. And I want to say I have used that Blu-ray maybe twice. Ah, Yep. I don't know. I haven't watched this movie a lot. Like Alan said, we watched it in theaters together. Watched it a couple of times when it came out on home video, but that movie is about 10 years old now, and I have not watched it in a long time. So listeners, the question after the show is do you like The Dark Knight better than Batman Begins or was my younger self in the minority and um and this and The Dark Knight is better? I don't know I'm curious to see what you all think which is the better film so make sure to comment that if you're seeing this on Facebook or if you're seeing it on YouTube Podbean comment wherever we'll definitely see those and I'm curious to have that conversation which is the better film
1: I know that there is a community out there that likes uh, Batman Begins better than the Dark Knight. I know that they exist.
0: (laughs) That's interesting. I I hope I hear from some of them and they can give me some compelling points as to why it's better. Because go back and listen to our review of Batman Begins. I gave this film a significantly higher grade than the first film.
1: Yeah, I think we both had the same rating for that movie, actually.
0: Yes, that is true. All right, Alan, thanks for joining me. Sure thing. All right, listeners, we will see you next week with Inception. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin.